Hi guys, this is the God Besotted Podcast and I'm your host Karina. In this episode, we are back in our series on the attributes of God and we're going to be looking at God's goodness. What does it mean that God is good? Who is he good to? How is he good to them? And how are we to respond to God's goodness? Let's talk about all of that in this episode. I think it's going to be a good time, so let's just get right into it. You're probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you read the book or maybe you saw the movie, but you probably know that it's about four children who find a hidden land within a wardrobe called Narnia. Well, a few chapters into the book, when one of the children, Edmund, is captured by the White Witch, the other three children and some friends that they met named Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are discussing a plan to rescue him. Mr. Beaver says someone named Aslan would be able to help, and he quotes a poem. It says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. One of the children, Lucy, asks Mr. Beaver, is, is he a man? Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who's king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, like Aslan, our God isn't safe. No, but he is good. And so in this episode, we're going to look at the goodness of God. And we'll see that God's goodness is an unending wellspring. It's an infinite fountain. We could literally sing forever about God's goodness. And scripture says that we will. But in this episode, we're just going to look at two points with, of course, a few sub points under each. We're going to look at God's goodness and our gratefulness. We'll start with God's goodness. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem defines God's goodness this way. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Grudem goes on to point out that this definition begs a question. Whose approval? It says all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Well, who decides ultimately what is worthy of approval? What is good? And the answer that Grudem gives is God himself. What is good? Good is what God approves. And Grudem says we may ask then, why is what God approves good? We must answer, because he approves it. That is to say, there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. So God is the standard of goodness because he is goodness. 
in a world that says right and wrong is relative, that there's no absolute standard to know what's right and what's wrong, this matters. When we say God is good, we're saying first and foremost that he is the final standard of goodness. We're saying he is perfect in moral excellence and he alone determines what is morally excellent. It's based on his character. So in this sense, when we're talking about goodness, as John Frame, another theologian, puts it, goodness is conduct that meets God's standards. But the biblical concept of goodness is broader than just moral excellence. According to Frame, scripture most often refers to goodness as acting to benefit another person. So theologians also call it benevolence. So that's really where we're going to be focusing the bulk of our time when we're talking about God's goodness. We're talking about his benevolence. John MacArthur's definition is helpful here. He says God's goodness is that he is the perfect sum, source, and standard for himself and his creatures of that which is wholesome, conducive to well-being, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. So we're not just thinking of moral excellence when we're talking about God's goodness in this episode. We're thinking of what is wholesome, conducive to well-being, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. God is the sum, source, and standard of all those things. So that's the first sub-point. God is the final standard of goodness. But to continue with Grudem's definition, he said the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of goodness and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So all that God is is worthy of approval, is good. Second sub-point. In Mark 10, when a Jewish man came up to Jesus and said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' reply was, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Far from indicating that Jesus was something other than good, Jesus was declaring his deity, his oneness with the Father. He was saying that he is God in the flesh and thus he is good. It was an accurate statement to call him good teacher. And in declaring this, Jesus teaches us something fundamental about God. God is good. It's who he is. In Exodus 33, after the people had committed idolatry and Moses had shattered the tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments, Moses entered the tent of meeting, which was a place where he and God used to speak, a place where he went to meet with God. And Moses begged God not to abandon Israel. He said, yes, the people have been disobedient. They had already broken the covenant. But Moses reminded God that what set Israel apart among the nations was that they were a people with whom was the very presence of God. If God withdrew his presence, who was Israel? They were no one. He begged God to go with them to the promised land and God remembered his covenant and confirmed that his presence would go with them. Then, and it almost seems sudden as you read the conversation in Exodus 33, after God says this, Moses asks to see God's glory. He says, I pray, show me your glory. Now, at this point, Moses had already been speaking, the scripture says, to God like a friend. But he wanted in this moment an assurance that God would really keep his promise, that he'd really stay with Israel like he just said he would, even after all that had happened. And so God agreed to Moses' request with a caveat. 
God said, no one can behold my face and live. That is, no one can look at all my glory all at once. But listen to what he told Moses. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So the next day on Mount Sinai, God allowed Moses to see his back instead of his face. And he passed by in front of Moses, declaring his name, that he is Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So there was this theophany, this visible representation and and a revelation of God to Moses on Mount Sinai in response to Moses' request to see God's glory. But why did God summarize this visible revelation of himself, of his character, of his glory as my goodness? Why did he say, I will make my goodness pass before you? Because goodness is who God is. And we read in Second Chronicles that later, when God's people are now a successful nation with a king, Solomon built a temple for God. And when the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with his people, was brought into the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the house of God as the priests sang. What does the scripture say they were singing? It says they sang about God. He is indeed good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Chapter 7 of Second Chronicles says, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. So in scripture, in both of these instances, on Mount Sinai and in the temple, we see that when God reveals his glory to his people, they praise his goodness. What sets God apart from any other so-called God, an essential aspect of his glory as the one true God, is his unselfish goodness. In eternity past, God had perfect happiness within the Trinity, yet it was out of benevolent goodness, out of love, that he chose to create and redeem man. So it's no wonder that when man looks upon his glory, they praise his goodness. God chose to reveal himself to humanity, as he did to Moses in Exodus 33, as the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. John Frame points out that in the Old Testament, God's name, Yahweh, is expounded in terms of mercy, grace, and loving kindness. These are aspects of God's goodness, of love. John Frame says there's nothing more basic to God's nature than love. So God's glory, his awesomeness, is tied to his goodness. He is a great God, and his goodness is great. In the New Testament, we learn, as we've mentioned briefly, that Jesus was God in the flesh. And John 1, 14, one of the most critical passages on this topic says, The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, became the presence of God in our midst. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
put a pin in that. Verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. It's like God said to Moses, you can't see my full glory. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus, he has explained him, God. So Jesus, in John 1 we learn, is the fullest revelation of God, the exact representation of God's nature. And John describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. His glory is from the Father, full of grace and truth. This phrase, grace and truth, is hearkening back to God's revelation of himself in Exodus 33. Remember, in Exodus 33 and 34, God revealed himself to Moses as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, grace and and truth. This is the revelation of God to man. God reveals himself, his nature, his character as good. And in Nehemiah 9.20 and Psalm 143.10, God's spirit is called the good spirit. What's the point of talking about Mount Sinai and then Jesus uh, when he was on earth and now the good spirit? The point is that the triune God is good. He's good in the Old Testament. He's good in the New Testament. His goodness is intrinsic to his nature. So as Grudem said, the goodness of God means that all that God is, is worthy of approval. Goodness is who he is and praise is the proper response to his goodness. But in Grudem's definition, God's goodness means also that all that God does is worthy of approval. So here we're at like our third sub point under God's goodness. So all that God does is worthy of approval. What does that mean? We see God's goodness through his actions. How do we know that God is good? We look at what he does. In Exodus 33, right before Moses asked to see God's glory, Moses said to God, let me know your ways that I may know you. We discover who God is. We confirm that God is truly good in part by looking at what he has done. So what has God done? On the opening page of our Bibles, we learn about God's actions that in the beginning, God created. On each day of the seven days of creation, God looked at what he made and declared what? It was good. And when he had made man, God declared that his creation was very good. God created a very good world because he is a very good God. Goodness is what God does. I love Psalm 119.68, and I pray it all the time. The psalmist says to God and reminds himself, you are good and you do good. Everything God does is good. Every good thing we have is a gift from him. The Apostle James says in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is saying that the creator God, the father of lights, the one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars is a good father. And he never changes, never wavers, never diverges from this goodness. He is eternally, utterly good. Now, although God created a good world, we know that he created a man and a woman who were very good, but were able to sin. And we know from Genesis 3 that when a serpent, our age-old enemy, suggested that maybe God was holding out on them. Maybe God wasn't really good. The man and the woman chose to disobey God and sin entered the world. And with sin came suffering, pain, heartbreak, death, and spiritual separation from God. But just because God's good creation was marred by sin does not mean that God ceased to be good. His goodness never ends. 
So with the presence of sin in the world, a reasonable question at this point is, well, how does God relate to his world post-fall? If the creation, including humanity, is now tainted by sin, does God still exercise his goodness toward it? The amazing news of scripture is that God continues to be good. Thank God his goodness doesn't depend on us, on whether we're good or whether the creation is good. God still waters the earth. He sends the sun running across the sky, chased by the moon each night. He still provides for his creatures. Psalm 103, 27 and 28 says God is the one who feeds the animals. It says they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. And it's not just animals that God is good to after the fall. Amazingly, in Luke 6.35, we are encouraged to love our enemies because God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And in Matthew 5.45, Jesus encourages us also to love our enemies because God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That means that God is good to all, even people who hate him, ignore him, and curse him. So Psalm 145.9 sums it up nicely. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. What's incredible and what I want to drive home is that the all has no exclusions. It's not just the righteous or the faithful that God shows goodness to after the fall. God is kind even to his enemies. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we've covered that God is good. He is the standard of goodness. Goodness is who he is and what he does. And now this passage in Romans brings us to such an important point. And that is that the greatest good that God ever did was to send Jesus to die and be risen from the dead to bring us to him, to make us right with God. A.W. Pink puts it this way, The goodness of God appeared most illustriously when he sent forth his Son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Then it was that a multitude of the heavenly host praised their maker and said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What A.W. Pink is saying is that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places watched in awe as God unfolded his plan for redemption. The grace of God, which is an aspect of goodness, appeared. It was revealed through God bringing salvation to all, through God extending salvation through Christ as a free gift to anyone who would receive his son. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. John is saying God so loved. God is good. How? Scripture says by sending his son. 
But as we saw in the episode on God's love, when we looked at God's special love for believers, in the same way God shows his love differently to different people, God shows his goodness differently to people. He doesn't give the same blessings to everyone. We see in scripture that those who reject Christ do not experience the same blessings that believers do, blessings that are found only in a right relationship with God through Christ. Scripture indicates that those who reject God may receive rain and harvest and food in due time. But ultimately, God's goodness will be a judgment upon those who, although they've received these good things, will still not honor him as God or bow to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Where am I getting this? Well, in Romans 1 through 3, Paul describes how all of humanity has violated God's commandments. All of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, fall short of the glory of God. He says Gentiles, those without the law, see the truth about God revealed through creation. Paul says God's divine attributes are clearly seen by looking at what he has made. One of these attributes would include his goodness. Gentiles see the sky and they see the ocean and the mountains. They feel the salty breeze at the beach and the warmth of a newborn on their chest and the taste of hot chocolate on a cold wintry night. They experience all these rich blessings that bear witness to the character of God, the goodness of God. Yet Paul says they do not honor him as God or give thanks. And in Romans 2, after he gets done talking about Gentiles and he describes how those unbelieving Gentiles disregard God when they should acknowledge him and worship him as creator, Paul turns to Jews and he says, you're doing the same thing as the Gentiles. You're judging them, but you're doing the same evil things they do. You're violating God's law, which was given to you, and yet you're passing judgment on Gentiles. And Paul says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. God's kindness, God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. God is good to all people, unjust, ungrateful, evil enemies of God, but he doesn't give the same blessings to everyone. You'll remember that when he revealed himself to Moses, when he said, I will make my goodness pass in front of you, he reminded Moses, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is saying it's his prerogative, who he blesses and how. But he does give good gifts to everyone. So it's our responsibility to acknowledge him and adore him as the good father who gives us all these gifts. In the end, the multitude of blessings that God bestows, even on those who are ungrateful, even on those who are his enemies, who reject Christ, who choose not to give thanks to God for the blessings he gives, the greatest of which is Christ, all these blessings will bear witness against them. As John Frame says, no one in hell will be able to say that God wasn't good to them. That's a sobering thought. A.W. Tozer writes, By our own attitude, we may determine our reception by him. Though the kindness of God is an infinite, overflowing fountain of cordiality, God will not force his attention upon us. If we would be welcomed as the prodigal was, we must come as the prodigal came. And when we so come, even though the Pharisees and the legalists sulk without there will be a feast of welcome within and music and dancing as the father takes his child again to his heart. So what about the prodigal? 
What about people who do acknowledge God and give thanks and receive Jesus as the indescribable gift that he is? How does God show goodness to us, his children? Well, although God is good to all, as we've said, the blessings he bestows upon believers are especially good, almost too good to fathom, and they are forever, these blessings. We don't have time enough to go into the blessings that we have as children of God, but we'll try to to touch upon it. We who are in Christ find an ocean of blessing at the foot of the cross. It's an ocean that will never run dry for eternity unto eternity unto eternity. In Ephesians 1, Paul describes at length the incredible blessings that God has bestowed on us as believers. He talks about the inheritance we have in Christ, the glory that is ours through Christ, the hope we have because of Christ. And he says three times, it's all so that God's glory would be on display. Listen to uh, these verses from Ephesians 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, Let's unpack that just a bit. It, Paul says all these blessings that we have, every spiritual blessing, is to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Grace is God's goodness shown to those who deserve punishment. Us. We deserve punishment because we were enemies of God. We were sinners. We were helpless in our sin, not able not to sin. And Paul says that God freely... That is, he sovereignly, at his own discretion, according to his own will, not because he was obligated, just because he wanted to, God freely bestowed on us, believers, his children, grace, goodness, when we deserved punishment. And he did it in the beloved, that is, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he did it to the praise of his glory, the praise of the glory of his grace. God did all these kind things, these unbelievably good things for believers through Christ, through the beloved, so that people will praise the glory of his grace. And Paul does just that. When he gets done describing its glorious inheritance we have in Christ, he says, for this reason, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul recognizes that salvation is impossible. The redemption of God's good creation and his restoration of it through Christ would be impossible if it wasn't for the goodness and the grace of God. And so he goes straight to God to thank him for what he has done in the church. So here's what we've covered up to this point. We've said that the goodness of God is evident to all. It's shown to all. But it's ultimately a judgment upon unbelievers who reject God, who choose not to give thanks to him and bow to Jesus Christ, who is the greatest gift that God has ever given mankind. But for those who do receive that gift, the blessings of God are even more abundant in their lives. The goodness of God flows freely and fully to God's people. So, so what? How should we respond? 
We've looked at God's goodness. Now let's look briefly at our second point, our gratefulness. We'll break this into two sub points, ask and trust. First, ask. One of the ways we can express our gratefulness for God's goodness to us is to ask. That might seem counterintuitive at first, so here's what I mean. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he taught a lot on prayer. One of the things he told his disciples was not to be wordy when they're praying just for the sake of being wordy. Why? He says, don't be like the Gentiles who use meaningless repetition, thinking God will hear them because of their many words, because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus's command presupposes that we will have needs. God is not something other than good because we lack something. Scripture teaches that even when we suffer, he is good. His goodness hasn't changed just because we experience pain or hardship or heartbreak. God causes all things, even horrible things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so a bit later in his sermon, Jesus tells the disciples, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Whatever our needs are, we can go to God and ask. We're encouraged to ask for what we need, and we'll see that he answers. God is so good. He's not rolling his eyes when we come ask for things. He's not dragging his feet uh, trying to accomplish what we need. He is not tired of us asking. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust, and he's gentle. In our neediness, he invites us to ask and to wait on his goodness. And secondly, another way we can express our gratefulness to God for his goodness is to trust. I love Psalm 27. It's a psalm of David. In the last few verses, David prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And then he says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Trust in God is what kept David from despairing. Believing that we will see the goodness of God is what will calm our anxiety about the future, what will give us strength to face the trials of the present. God has given us every reason in the past to believe that he will be good to us in the future. He has promised to do good to us as his children. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, one of my favorite verses, He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? The goodness of God means we can trust God. God. He gave us Jesus, the greatest gift we could ever receive. He gave us someone who died and rose to bring us to God, to give us the highest good in existence, which is a relationship with God himself. John Piper writes in his book, God is the Gospel, and I just want to end with this quote. He says, the redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. 
He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good, which the redeemed are received to at death, and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem, and is the river of the water of life that runs, and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints, and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. So may we say to God as David did in Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I have no good besides you. May we taste and see that he is good. And when life is hard, may we say to God, Do what seems good to you, because we know that he will do us only good. And then may we ask, knowing that he's a good father, and trust that he who would deliver the eternal Son of God to death is a God who will with him freely give us all things. Thank you so much for listening to the God Besotted podcast. I'm so grateful for every opportunity I get to share God's word with you so we can all know God more deeply and love him and his people more. If you're loving this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts and join me each Monday as we continue our series on the attributes of God. And don't forget to come find me on Instagram at God underscore besotted. I would love to connect with you there. So until next time, may we be God besotted in all we do.